The views and comments expressed on the Space Show by its guests, callers, and listeners belong to them. The Space Show and its hosts serve only as a platform and are not responsible for others' comments or views. All topics discussed on the Space Show are primarily for educational purposes. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. It's the Space Show with Dr. David Livingston. Broadcasting for seven continents, consistently bringing you quality news and interviews with the best and brightest minds in the new space economy. Here is the founder and host of the Space Show, the man who best articulates the vision of space commercial enterprise, Dr. David Livingston. Good morning, listeners. Welcome to the Friday Morning California Time Space Show program. I am your host, David Livingston. Thank you very much for tuning in. And uh, I I think we're going to have an excellent and interesting discussion and more about that in just a minute. A couple of very quick announcements. Um, Number one is we're on the 60-minute format this morning. So please do watch the time. And if you want to get an email or a phone call in for our guests, Make sure you do it while we're still on air because it is the 60-minute program. And uh, I'm, I'm sure we're um, looking forward to your participation in this program. And then do remember that uh, Sunday is open line, so all callers, all calls are welcome if they're space, STEM, or science-related. And then we have programs next week, Monday and Tuesday, and then we resume again on Sunday due to the Thanksgiving holiday. So um, if you have any questions, uh, let us hear from you, Dr. Space at thespaceshow.com. And uh, we thank you for listening. So our phone number this morning is 1-866-687-7223. That is the preferred way of communicating with us, but you can also use email, drspace, D-R-S-P-A-C-E, at thespaceshow.com. And uh, in addition, you can use our blog, which is on our website, spaceshow.com. And to do that, just go to the far right for upcoming menus. This is the first program listed with Dr. Runyon. Click on that. That's our blog page. And if you scroll down, you'll see a place for comments and questions. As soon as you post them and hit the send button, I will get a copy of it and can integrate your comment or question into our discussion. But as we are a talk show, we do prefer phone calls. Once again, 1-866-687-7223. The website newsletter is posted, and uh, it will be updated Sunday after the Sunday Space Show program. Uh, I suggest when you open it up to scroll down, and you'll see the programs we have listed for the balance of 2019 and for the start of 2020. Your guest suggestions are always welcome. Send them to me with as much information as you can about the proposed guest to Dr. Space at thespaceshow.com. And uh, remember, of course, everything is archived. You can listen right off of our website or quickly download the program. Uh, it is gift-giving season or very close to it. We do have a Space Show store. Check it out. There may be some stocking stuffers there for you or something for your favorite space show listener advocate and supporter and to get there just look for any of the pictures on the website of pepper listening to the space show and pepper will guide you to our cafe press store upper left menu has support the space show in that menu and that tells you how to listen to live broadcasts such as the one we're doing right now archives and podcast if you have any questions don't hesitate to um, email me dr space at the com, and for podcast we're on TuneIn, iHeartRadio, uh, most of the of the Android podcast apps and the same for Apple plus iTunes. If you have any um, questions or comments or need help with podcasting, don't hesitate to email me dr space at the com. A couple of other quick things. We have launched our annual fundraising campaign, and we hope that you will support us. Your support takes us into 2020, and uh, we're looking forward to another robust year, our 19th year. 
so uh, again, if you have any questions about supporting or why, listen to the program from last night, which I will archive right after I do this show live today. Uh, it explains our fundraising program, what we do with the money, spatial budgets, and things like that. Uh, but we do appreciate your support. You guys have made the show the way it is, and the guests and everything, because of your support, uh, this is what we're able to do. And we deeply, deeply appreciate that. So uh, we are a 501c3 nonprofit with one giant leapfoundation.org. So remember, if you are a federal U.S. taxpayer, you'll get a nice end-of-the-year tax deduction for your gift. If you're a California taxpayer, you get the same. We're a public benefit corporation in California. If you have any questions, look at our parent 501c3 site, onegiantleapfoundation.org, or email me, drspace, at thespaceshow.com. Don't forget we have sponsors, and we're getting ready to take sponsors now for 2020. They get the banner ad running across the homepage, and uh, they get on 90-minute shows a full 60-second message promoting uh, whatever it is that they want to promote, read on air, and on the shorter program formats like today, I shout out for them because without our great sponsor support, uh, we would not be doing the space show. So we deeply thank Northrop Grumman, the Space Foundation, Astrox, A-S-T-R-O-X, AIAA, Moonwards, the Space Development Network, Celestis, the National Space Society, and the Space Plan. Click on their banners and see what they are promoting and talking about underneath those banners. And uh, we thank them again very much for their ongoing support. Our guest today, referred to me by Dr. Alan Stern, is Dr. Kirby Runyon. He is a planetary geologist at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab and a science team member on NASA's New Horizon mission to Pluto and the Kuiper Belt. His research focuses on using spacecraft images to understand the geologic process that shape beautiful alien landforms on planets, moons, and small bodies across the solar system. He is passionate about helping the public understand and get excited about space exploration and since 2017 has been working to promote a holistic view of the solar system in the mind of public beyond simply the sun and eight or nine planets. Uh, he's in Maryland. He's also part of the NASA Concept Interstellar Mission, which we will talk about later in the program. And he is also a big proponent of the discussion that we started with Alan Stern a couple of, uh, about 10 days ago regarding planetary nomenclature. And um, welcome to the program, Kirby. How are you? Oh, good morning, David. Thank you for having me. I'm doing fine, thank you. You know, we already have a caller on air, which is early for callers, and <laughs> the caller doesn't even know what you're going to talk about yet. Um, so I'm sitting here wondering, do I want to take the caller and start the show with it, or do I want to uh, uh, go with you? So, uh, Well, you're the host. It's I, I'm you, the host. I'm kind of so, curious what, what they're calling about. Sort of. uh, let's see. It could, for all I know, it could be someone selling vacuum cleaners. So hang on. <laughs> Uh, hi, caller. Welcome to the space show. Who are you? Where are you? Thank you for your call. Are you there, caller? Well, that was quick. Uh, so I guess it was a vacuum cleaner salesman because <laughs> they usually allow the guests to, to get started and, and then they call in. Um, tell us what planetary nomenclature is all about. And, and to me, it seems like it's a sudden push to make changes. I understand what it is. Why or has this been... Uh, sort of brewing and percolating for quite a while, and it's only coming to the surface now. Well, the, this whole idea of really the, the, the word we use in science is taxonomy, this categorizing uh, objects in nature to help us understand it. And this happens a lot in biology, kind of in the heyday of, at least as I understand it, around the era of Darwin when, you know, the theory of evolution was just kind of coming, coming around. People were... Uh, uh, categorizing plants and animals uh, based on different body plan characteristics. And this is the first step of science, is understanding the categories of objects we're dealing with. There's really no start to when this began. It really began when people started observing nature around them. Um, and in the more uh, imminent discussion of what is a planet, what is not a planet, uh, this has been going on uh, since the Greeks first uh, 
uh, called these wandering stars planetae or, or wandering stars in the sky, and it's continued uh, through the development of modern science in the last few centuries uh, right up to the present. There was a big uptick in uh, how the word planet was used in the 1950s, um, and the, the word continued to be used uh, in, in varying capacities, right blowing, going up and through the August 24th, 2006 IAU, International Astronomical Union, vote on what is and what is not a planet. Um, in, in, in the early uh, 1800s, uh, when asteroids in the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter were just starting to be discovered, people called these worlds planets. Uh, they didn't really have any other name for them, um, and they kept on being called planets right up until the 1950s. And it was no problem for the astronomical community, for the uh, astronomy-interested general public. I mean, I've seen uh, high school textbooks from the early 1900s talking about the number of planets and listing the larger asteroids that were known at the time, like Pallas, Juno, Vesta, Ceres, um, and some others. And it was no problem that they all kind of shared a similar orbit, that they were kind of clustered between Mars and Jupiter. And it really wasn't until the 1950s, in some papers by Gerard Kuiper, uh, that it became clear that asteroids were geophysically distinct from what uh, from from the other uh, from the larger uh, eight other round worlds that we knew of in the solar system, from Mercury to Pluto. Pluto being discovered in 1930, um, and so uh, you know during this time period there was no voting on any taxonomical nomenclature. No one voted on these things. Same as, is is largely true in other areas of science. Um, People tend not to vote on what the definition of something is, or, or, or sorry, of like a, of what a species, a newly discovered species is. The, the, uh, the, the, the discoverers propose a name. They start to use the name when they write and speak about that organism. Uh, and then the rest of the scientific community who follows that and the general public catch on from this setting of precedent. Um, and the setting of precedent is, is really the key linchpin for understanding scientific taxonomy. Lawyers are eminently familiar with precedent. That's how uh, court cases are often decided upon, based on how uh, similar court cases were settled in the past. Um, in science, it's really no different. And really what is an anomaly in science is to have a large democratic voting body largely composed of non-experts, in the case of the IAU voting on a planet definition, because they were mainly extragalactic astronomers or, or stellar or galactic astronomers and astrophysicists who don't study planets, taking a vote on the definition of a planet. The problem with that is that both prior to that and in the uh, years since 2006, planetary scientists have continued to use whatever definition of planet they jolly well please, but they use it uh, implicitly. They, in other words, in their paper, they won't say, well, this is the definition of planet I'm using. They'll simply use the word planet to refer to um, non-IAU planets, to refer to objects like Titan, moon of Saturn, or Pluto, or, or our Earth's moon, or, or what have you. So, uh, so if I could kind of wrap up this and kind of get back to your question of taxonomy. Taxonomy is something that, that uh, is a part of science. It's uh, this it's often the first step in understanding some new aspect of science, and it changes as we learn new things about the natural world. So um, is why in 2019 am I seeing a push to correct what the IAU did, or maybe it's just getting press attention now, yeah. or, or has there been a, a push since that vote was taken to demote Pluto, I don't know, what was it, 10 years ago or something like it that? Was in, it was, yeah, 13, uh, if I can do math, uh, 13 years ago in, in, in 2006. Well, so we're getting a lot more attention now, but there's always been this rebellion. I, would, I don't know if rebellious is the right term, but there's been a, an underground push. Right after the vote, a number of prominent planetary scientists, including Alan Stern, Mark Sykes, and some others, published a number of pieces uh, both in the professional literature and in um, – the popular literature, decrying the IAU vote on the definition of Pluto. Um, and uh, this, the, the current push got its start in, uh, in the winter of 2017. Um, myself and a number of uh, other co-authors published a conference abstract in the Proceedings of the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference, which is held every March uh, outside Houston, Texas, um, in which uh, we talk about what we call the geophysical planet definition, and I'll, and I'll touch on the specifics of the geophysical planet defi definition in a moment. Uh, but this, this, this led to a firestorm of media attention uh, in early and mid-2017. I did a, 
I, I lost track of how many uh, radio and web and print interviews I did and my colleagues did on this topic. Uh, then uh, earlier this year, uh, my colleague Phil Metzger uh, at the University of Central Florida, who's kind of one of our team members on uh, understanding the geophysical planet definition, himself also a planetary scientist, uh, published a paper with myself and a number of others as co-authors on uh, on how the definition of asteroid uh, had changed throughout the 20th century and how the word planet is connected to that. Specifically, it showed that the IAU's uh, reasoning for requiring a quote-unquote true planet to gravitationally clear its orbit is anachronistic, and it's based on a false understanding of, of uh the historical record, really. And so there's been a number of papers. Um, another thing that uh, has bubbled to the surface is that just this past July at the Johns Hopkins APL uh, here in Laurel, Maryland, we had the Pluto, uh, the, the Pluto System After New Horizons conference um, over several days in July, uh, just prior to the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing, where uh, – you know, we brought together the world's experts, much of the New Horizons science team on Pluto, its large moon Charon, which itself is a planet in its own right, and its four small moons, Styx, Nix, Kerberos, and Hydra, uh, to kind of synthesize the world's sum total of knowledge about Pluto and the Pluto system um, coming now four years uh, after the uh, New Horizons flyby of Pluto in 2015. And so I think the combination of these factors is why now in late 2019 there's all of a sudden this uh, really large uh, attention coming to this uh, question of the definition of planet once again. And, and, and not uniquely tied to Pluto, but still what is Pluto's place uh, as we understand it in the solar system? Uh, is there a request or a demand being made that the IAU re- reverse their vote or does anyone care what the IAU did? I like the second part of your question. Does anyone care what the IAU did? Bluntly, not really. Um, in terms of the professional scientists who simply use the word planet in a way that's useful to them, uh, I've made the case before um, and um, that the IAU doesn't need to do anything because the first thing they did was, frankly, in my opinion, illegitimate to begin with. One does not uh, undergo scientific taxonomy or, or categorize things when you have non-experts voting on something. Uh, you would not have, for instance, uh, petroleum geologists voting uh, at a dental conference on what the definition of a molar is. It, it just doesn't work that way. Um, and so really the IAU doesn't need to do anything for the geophysical planet definition to be considered, quote-unquote, official or a proper alternative definition. Um, if, any, if the IAU should do anything, it should simply be to retract their definition of, of planet and not replace it with anything. Uh, it's interesting to note that, the, as far as I'm aware, the IAU does not have an official definition of star or galaxy. And indeed, they don't need an official definition of that. They don't need to vote on that because the, the, the professional literature, the educational literature, and the popular liter- literature all kind of know what stars and galaxies are. There's no need to vote on something. And so voting on a definition is really an anomaly, and it would clear things up for the IAU to rescind their definition and simply not replace it. I'm not looking for the IAU to replace the planet definition with the geophysical planet definition because the GPD is implicitly being used and has been used um, both before, during, and after the 2006 IAU vote. Um, are they yeah, so it's really just set by, by like I said, precedent. It's, it's the precedent set by experts in the field. Are they planning and, to re- reverse their vote or just leave it? Uh, to my knowledge, they're, uh, they're not planning on it. I think for that to happen, uh, a member of the IAU, which I am not, would have to uh, write a document requesting a vote be held on it, and that would be held at, at, at one of their uh, meetings, which are not every year and not even every other year. They're, they're less frequent than that. Um, Ted is in San Diego, and he said uh, – I didn't think that science was done by consensus. I thought it was a scientific method. I would think that science would include determining what a planet is or or is not. Um, Am I right in thinking that the IAU has not even honored the definition of science and the scientific method? Uh, I don't don't know whose question that was, if that was yours, David, or if this was Ted. No, that's a a good question. No, Ted, Um, yeah. Yeah, I would argue that the IAU has not honored the definition of science in voting on a definition. Um, the, the geophysical planet definition, and I think this might be a good time to kind of put that out there, it, it's very simple. It's a round thing in space that's less massive than a star, 
and it has to be round because of its own self-gravity. This is a case where the gravity exerted by the body is more powerful than the strength of the rock or metal or ice or whatever it's made out of, and that pulls it into a shape, much like the strength of your hand is sufficient to squeeze a rectangular sponge into a sphere, but it's not sufficient to squeeze a rectangular brick into a sphere, um, your, your hand playing the role of gravity in this instance. Um, and so in, in, in the scientific method, uh, we have seen, we, using the scientific method, I guess, we've, we, it's clear that uh, some bodies are round from self-gravity, others are not. Things like the sun and other stars that are also round by self-gravity also undergo nuclear fusion. Or their remnants, like white dwarfs and neutron stars or black holes, used to undergo nuclear fusion, and so they're stars. They're not planets. Um, and so a, a planet is a, is a substellar mass object that has never undergone nuclear fusion that is round by its own self-gravity regardless of its orbital parameters. In other words, it doesn't matter what it's orbiting or what's being orbited or, or, or what's orbiting it. Um, rogue planets not tied to any star would be a planet. The IAU actually doesn't even call them that. They call them uh, sub-brown dwarfs, which is a, a, a mouthful, and nobody really uses it as far as I know. Um, under the geophysical planet definition, uh, round moons like our moon and the 18 other round moons in the solar system are, in addition to being moons and satellites, they're also uh, planets. I would consider them satellite planets. Um, dwarf planet, where instead of a dwarf planet being defined as something that has not, quote-unquote, gravitationally cleared its orbit, the way the IAU says, is simply another type of planet that's just, I don't know, smaller than Mercury, which is a terrestrial planet. Um, and so the way that science really moves forward is kind of organic. It's kind of grassroots. It's based on word usage, um, and it's really not done by voting. So really the geophysical planet definition is, is um, an archetype, if you will, of how a lot of the rest of science is done from a taxonomical perspective. And to get to Ted's question, really the IAU voting by a bunch of astrophysicists who aren't even planetary scientists is really the anti-scientific way to go about doing this. Um, I have another uh, question from you. Helen uh, is in Seattle, uh, and Helen says, um, I find it also very interesting that after the vote, there seemed to be a rush in grade school, middle school, and high school science classes to remove Pluto as a planet, and ultimately they even modified many different textbooks going along with the IAU voting I don't understand why they were so quick to jump on the bandwagon. Was the IAU considered the ultimate authority at the time, and therefore school textbooks and science teachers had to teach that dogma? What happened, and then how do you reverse textbooks? <laughs> Helen, I love your question. I think there's a lot there, um, and you've really hit the nail on the head with that, Helen. Thank you for the question. Um, unfortunately, yes, the IAU is seen as the ultimate authority, and what they pass on is considered almost religious dogma that people are uh, compelled to teach. Um, it's really not scientific. And in fact, the founder of the Planetary Society, Carl Sagan, known to many in your audience, himself said, in science there are no authorities. At best, there are experts. Um, and so the prob one of the unintended consequences of the IAU vote, whether you're in favor of it or against it or, or ambivalent, is that indeed in people's minds the solar system shrank. The solar system went from the sun and nine other things, nine planets, to the sun and eight other things. Um, and I'm sure that was an unintended consequence by the, by the IAU, but it was really ill-conceived. Part of this problem is, is, is the... Is the, in my view, nonsensical, grammatically incorrect, and illogical statement by the IAU where they have explicitly said on their website that a dwarf planet is not a planet. Well, it has the word planet in there. You're just using an adjective to describe a noun. You're just describing what kind of planet it is. Um, and, and so, sure, dwarf planets are planets. And in fact, it's not pejorative. It's not a demotion to call something a dwarf planet. All it's saying is that it's little. And there's nothing wrong with being little. Um, sure, Pluto is smaller than our moon. But the fact that gravity is stronger than the ice and rock it's made out of pulling it into a round world means that, like, intuitively in our minds, we, just, we, we naturally just want to call it a planet. That's certainly true for me. It's certainly true for a lot of other planetary scientists and planetary geologists. Um, so there are some textbooks, there are some children's books that I've seen that have talked about dwarf planets, and that's good because it shows that the solar system is not uh, as simple as some would have us believe it is, just the sun and eight or nine things. 
Um, they typically include about five dwarf planets, only because that's the number of dwarf planets that the IAU has gotten around to voting about that exist. But since the IAU has voted, we've discovered over 120 more Pluto-sized planets, dwarf planets beyond Neptune, um, in the Kuiper Belt. Pluto is a Kuiper Belt object. It is a dwarf planet, but it is a full-fledged planet. I once had a, uh, just this past summer, I had uh, a fifth grader at, uh, at, a, at a Girl Scout astronomy event ask me, is Pluto a dwarf planet or is it a regular planet? And I loved the question. It's very similar to Helen's question. And, it's, and I said, it's both. It is a regular planet, but the type of regular planet it is, is a dwarf planet. You know, in the precedent-setting literature, we refer to routinely Uranus and Neptune uh, the, as ice giant planets, Jupiter and Saturn as gas giant planets. Mercury, Venus, Mars, Earth, and even our moon get referred to as terrestrial planets. Nobody ever voted on those, but those words are all over NASA literature. They're all over the professional literature. It's how we as scientists communicate to each other and the public. Those terms, those subcategories of planets are extremely useful, and we use them all the time. Dwarf planet is no different than that, uh, except that we use, again, a, a different dwarf planet definition than the IAU uses. We're not worried about extrinsic properties of whether it's had enough gravity to clear its orbit. We're simply worried about intrinsic properties, what it is, not where it is. It's almost like if you can make this personal, it's who you are, not who your friends are. And so Pluto, simply just by being smaller than Mercury, and yes, that's admittedly a little bit arbitrary, but it's, it's just a, a solar system-centric view of being consistent. And these things are dwarf planets, and pretty much anything 400 kilometers in diameter and larger, if it's made out of ice, is going to be round. And so getting back to Helen's question, to change textbooks, we're actually trying to work on that right now. Um, there is a new Wikipedia entry for the geophysical planet definition uh, that uh, is pretty balanced, both by people for it against it. Um, and that's fair. I'm, I'm all in favor of the fair marketplace, marketplace of ideas, where the best ideas rise to the top in an open, free discussion. Um, and uh, as we publish more in the professional literature, the peer-reviewed literature, as there's more media events like the Space Show, um, the, I, I believe the pendulum will sing, swing where that people see that there really are at least two legitimate definitions of, of planet. I want to touch on what I mean by two illegitimate definitions of planet. To a lot of uh, uh, planetary scientists, especially those who lean more on the planetary astronomy side, those who are worried about orbital dynamics, to them a useful planet definition may really be something that is gravitationally dominant. And in that case, you've got four, maybe five planets in our solar system, Earth-sized planets and larger, things that really gravitationally whip other things around and control uh, their area of space. If that's a useful definition to them, I don't begrudge them that. There's a lot of great scientists um, who use that definition. My only challenge for those scientists who think that there's eight or fewer planets in our solar system is to, if, is to say, if that's a useful planet definition for you, fine, use it, teach it, that's great. But don't, but don't look to the IAU to cement your preferred planet definition. Just use it because you're an expert and uh, you've got the, uh, and it's a useful definition. In the same way, for those of us planetary scientists who tend to be more concerned with the intrinsic, the surface and interior properties of worlds, the geophysical planet definition uh, is, is the more useful definition, and we use that. It's very similar, I think, to how astronomers use the word metal and how everyone else uses the word metal. To an astronomer, everything on the periodic chart with more than two protons in the nucleus, in other words, anything heavier than helium, is they call a metal. And hydrogen and helium are the only non-metals. Well, obviously, to a metal, are just that's not the same definition, but they're not fighting with each other. In their specific communities, they know what they mean with the word metal. If, it, if an orbital dynamicist, a planetary scientist, wants to count there as being eight planets because there's only eight or fewer gravitationally dominant worlds in the solar system, fine. But don't look to the IAU to cement that definition, uh, and don't begrudge those of us who are more interested in intrinsic properties from using um, a much more broad broad and inclusive definition of planet. You're going to love this question that I got. I, I mean, this one will probably be a first for you, I bet, okay? Oh. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> I don't know what to make of it, but I'm going to read it. Uh, sure. Bob in Tucson, and he says, in the uh, politically correct world that we live in, you would stand in the corner with the largest dunce cap ever if you called a little person a dwarf or a midget, why is it okay to call a planet a dwarf planet? Now, I understand that a planet is not a human being, is not a person, but calling a little person a dwarf is so outrageous in today's politically sensitive culture. 
surely you can say maybe small planet or little planet and not typecast it as a dwarf? So there's a lot of, okay. Um, I appreciate the socially sensitive position uh, this caller is coming from. Uh, I would not, we use the word dwarf in a lot of other categories. The sun is a dwarf, a yellow dwarf star. Uh, astronomers categorize things smaller than the sun as, as red dwarfs. Um, uh, the spectral, clay, spectral type um, M dwarf star, that's a, that's a very common, in fact, it's the most common type of star in the galaxy and the universe. Um, there are uh, breeds of animals called dwarf fill-in-the-blank. Uh, I guess I don't see the word uh, dwarf as a pejorative term in any sense, although one, of course, needs to be sensitive about um, how people relate to other people. And generally, if you're in doubt, you should ask a person how, they, uh, uh, how, how you can respect them as a person, what titles uh, and labels do they prefer or not prefer. So I, I, I kind of want to I, I understand the socially sensitive issue of that, but I also uh, don't think that the word dwarf is is a, anyway pejorative, um, and in fact, if you started, I suppose other words could get a pejorative sense if you started using them in that sense. Again, it comes down to word precedent. So I think I've said about all I'd like to say about that. Well, I'm, I'm not sure that talking about a planet or something like that is the same as talking about a human being. I, I completely agree with you. So, but uh, I've never seen a question like that. So I, I wanted to uh, to throw it out there with you. Um, if people have their kids in school and they take an interest in what their kids are learning in science, for example, and they're going through their science book and they see Pluto is not a planet, what, what can they do? It's really hard to change a textbook. It is. Uh, one thing that I would really encourage students and their parents to do is to write or email the textbook editor. That information should be on the front cover and point them in the direction of the Geophysical Planet Definition Wikipedia entry, point them in the direction of this uh, archived uh, space show, uh, radio show, and, t- and podcast. Um, and there's so much information uh, on the Internet now um, on the Geophysical Planet Definition. Just Google Geophysical Planet Definition, or GPD, and you'll have a number of articles come up that you can cite. And you can tell the textbook author that they would appreciate that a more balanced view of the two predominant planet definitions being introduced in the textbook. Um, and they could put this in the interest of having presenting the solar system as it really is. In other words, a very diverse, rainbow diverse, um, inclusive place where there are lots of different types of planets that are all very different from each other, but they all have some core fundamental aspects uh, in common with each other. And um, and to show and to show that there are a, a planetary astronomers who use another definition, and that's okay because it's useful to them. Um, and, and, and one that I would call the, the gravitational or the, the orbital planet definition, if you will. Um, so to change a textbook that requires parents and teachers and students being active, um, emailing, calling, writing the textbook editors, and, and presenting a case for why uh, not including dwarf planets as full-fledged planets uh, hurts our understanding and hurts our view of how broad and diverse and inclusive the solar system really is. Is a teacher required to teach to the textbook or... Can parents um, and students maybe uh, educate the teacher, so to speak, so the teacher makes the correction to the class? Uh, I would certainly hope that a teacher is not required to teach to the textbook because if a teacher has gotten to the teacher, then he or she has some uh, understanding of the subject matter that they're teaching. So uh, I think it's absolutely appropriate for a teacher to do independent research outside the textbook uh, with working with the students and the, the parents to come up with uh, a better, more holistic curriculum, and to also involve their principal and other uh, educator and colleagues and curriculum developers. Jack is in Denver, and he said, um, do exoplanets, as much as we know about them, which are outside our solar system, mm-hmm. follow the same definition uh, as what you've been talking about on this show? Yes, exoplanets uh, are treated just the same with the geophysical planet definition as planets in our own solar system. And I'll point out that the IAU planet definition doesn't consider them at all. It doesn't say whether they're planets or not, which seems a little ridiculous. But I, I understand the IAU's reasons for doing that, which ultimately comes down to what box of names do you call things for newly discovered Pluto-sized planets. So the geophysical planet definition, again, regardless of its orbit, it's all about intrinsic properties. If something is less massive than a star but has enough mass to be round, uh, then yes, it's a planet. Exoplanets are, of course, full-fledged planets and a category of planet. The geophysical planet definition deals with them handily, uh, and um, 
And the only, the only uh, pushback I've gotten from people is from people who I think like to split hairs a little ridiculous, too, too ridiculously and say, well, we, we've never imaged them, so we don't actually know if exoplanets are round or not. And the, the response is, all the exoplanets we've discovered are approximately Earth mass or larger for any known material that's large enough to be round by, by its own self-gravity. So we can confidently say the exoplanets that have been discovered are round and uh, are, are not undergoing nuclear fusion, and so, yes, they are, in fact, planets. And the same would go for rogue planets, planets that uh, may have been ejected from the star systems in which they formed. Um, what, if I can diverge a little bit, there's actually some really fun uh, uh, science fiction precedent set for this. Uh, some of your listeners may be familiar with the character Odo from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. He's a shapeshifter, right. one of the founders. And his planet that he comes from is a rogue planet. It's not bound to any one star. Um, and so that's a fun piece of science fiction trivia. And, and they use the term rogue planet in, in that Star Trek episode. Um, so it's already in our lexicon. And we planetary scientists, we don't really, I mean, we've never discovered a rogue planet, but I think it's only a matter of time until we do. Uh, and we're probably going to call it a rogue planet. And in implicitly ignoring the IAU <laughs> on that one. Um, so um, Jack is in Atlanta. And uh, he says, I'm roughly the same age as David, early 70s. And uh, I grew up in science classes, and uh, there were no known planets other than the nine planets of our solar system. Uh, there were lots of stars that were talked about, but science teachers said no other planets existed and had not been discovered. When did that type of teaching change? Was it because of the Kepler mission or did it happen before the Kepler mission when they started realizing there were lots of other planets even outside our solar system as well as in our solar system? Right. So I appreciate that question because that shows the beautiful progress that science makes. Yes, at the time, uh, um, uh, you and your contemporaries in the, in the uh, earlier in the 20th century, mid, 20, mid to late 20th century, going through school. Um, yeah, we, we literally only knew about um, actually 10 round things orbiting the sun in the solar system, if you include Ceres, um, Mercury through Pluto. And it was the, the discovery of the first exoplanet in the 1990s that we said, aha, we've suspected there were planets around other stars before, but we could never say with certainty. Now we can say with certainty. We have disproven the hypothesis that there are no other planets outside the solar system. And so that is imminently the march of, uh, of science as we learn new things and how the taxonomy has to change. Also, in the late 90s and early 2000s, lots of round things beyond Pluto were being discovered. And we now classify these things as dwarf planets. And this is something everyone can agree on. Even people who follow um, lockstep with the IAU planet definition would consider these round worlds beyond Pluto dwarf planets. The difference is, are dwarf planets planets or not? And, of course, I and many of my colleagues consider dwarf planets to be full-fledged planets simply because they're smaller than Mercury. Um, and so just because we've made more discoveries, to your caller's uh, question, we've made more discoveries, we've discovered more round planets in our solar system, um, we've discovered lots of planets around other stars, and certainly missions like the Kepler mission, and now the TESS mission, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite mission, are discovering, we're now in the thousands of known exoplanets. Um, and if you extrapolate that, it's, it's, planets are far more numerous than stars. There are approximately 400 billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy, and each of them has probably on the order of, uh, of 100, 200 planets. Or if you want to cut off, uh, if you want to take like 1,000 kilometers as a cutoff, which is roughly the diameter of, uh, of uh, I think, Pluto's moon Charon, uh, then, there are, then there are multiple hundreds. And so there's orders of magnitudes more planets in the, in the galaxy and therefore universe than stars. And I find that astounding. And that is how more scientific discoveries have shaped the taxonomy we use. It's shaped the labels that we place on things in nature to help us understand the world in which we live better. So I had science classes in the in the fifties, and there were you know billions of stars, but only nine planets. So this is totally flip flopped. Yeah, it's flip flopped now. Um, within our own solar system, of course, um, there are about a hundred fifty, hundred sixty planets. Uh, there's only four giant planets. There's only five terrestrial planets, if you count uh, the moon as a terrestrial planet, and I do. Uh, but there are over one hundred thirty satellite planets and dwarf planets. They are the overwhelmingly the most common type of planet, just like dwarf stars are overwhelmingly the most common type of star. 
And if people are complaining that there's too many planets in our own solar system to bother memorizing, I would agree with them. But I would also push back and say, why do you need to memorize everything in a category? No one bothers to memorize all the stars in the galaxy. Even few people have all 88 constellations memorized, and no one really takes the time, unless they're uh, being poorly educated, to wrote, memorize the periodic table. Um, it's simply enough to know that there are categories and to understand where these categories come from and to know a few examples. So if you absolutely feel like you have to memorize a list of planet names, you know, pick your top 10 or 20 favorite and, uh, and, and maybe do it by size or composition or distance from the sun or, or, or zone in the solar system rather than just straight from the sun outward. Is progress being made in um, changing um, education and, and culture away from the IAU um, definition? Yes, I believe progress is being made, uh, thanks to you, David, uh, the show, and a lot of other media outlets. Getting back to Helen's question, um, it's, it's changing at the university level and university level uh, space and science or and astronomy classes. Um, I'm really hoping this trickles down into the K-12 education, into textbooks uh, for, for those age groups uh, sooner rather than later. And um, a number of my colleagues are actively uh, uh, working to do that. Um, it's, there's a lot of inertia against that, though, um, but I think uh, it's going to – as university curricula uh, start changing, which are frankly easier to change, um, it'll start working its way into K-12 education, I believe. So obviously this is global, but are you seeing um, easier, easier to make changes in the U.S., say, than Europe or South America, or is it pretty much constant all over the place? Uh, are some areas more receptive to making changes? Um, I haven't noticed any, any, any receptivity difference based on nationality or geography, more uh, based on a person's background and, and how they've thought through the situation. Uh, I, I imagine the, the situation in South America or Europe or Asia or wherever uh, would be similar uh, to the United States. Um, some people have accused us of this being an, an American-centric um, problem because we just want to keep Pluto as a planet because uh, in the – in 1930, was the only American-discovered planet. That's absolutely not the case at all. Um, it, it, this is not about Pluto. This is not about the United States. This is about uh, a holistic understanding and inclusive understanding of our solar system and using taxonomy and words that help us form mental pictures of an, uh, form accurate mental pictures of the way the solar system really is. Um, I wanted to reserve some time to talk about this. Um, contemplated NASA interstellar mission. I, yeah. I guess that's because it's not yet a firm mission. Is that correct? That's correct. So interstellar probe is a mission concept that we at Johns Hopkins APL uh, are, are working with NASA on. Uh, and the idea here is, so let me, let me just debunk, it's not a starship. We're not sending a spacecraft to Alpha Centauri or any other star system. But it is to get outside of the heliosphere, this magnetic bubble that the sun blows in space and kind of dip our toe in the gases, plasma, and magnetic fields of the galaxy um, outside the uh, influence of the sun. And so um, you're, a lot of your listeners may, re may know that uh, the twin Voyager 1 and 2 spacecraft have both left the heliosphere, the sun's bubble in the galaxy, and the, they are now in interstellar space, and they are both now interstellar spacecraft, and they are on interstellar missions because they're still taking measurements and communicating with us, having launched 42 years ago, which is pretty amazing. Um, interstellar probe would uh, send a spacecraft, if it becomes a real mission, uh, using all near-term technology, not having to invent any new crazy plasma uh, propulsion drive, certainly not the warp drive or anything to go really fast, using modern uh, technology. It's a very pragmatic approach to uh, quickly leave the solar system at least twice as fast as Voyager 1, which is the uh, fastest object leaving the solar system, moving at 3.6 astronomical units per year, an astronomical unit being the uh, uh, Earth-Sun distance. New Horizons, the spacecraft New Horizons that flew past Pluto, and then Arrakoth, MU-69, um, is leaving the solar system at three astronomical units per year. We believe that we can send a spacecraft out of the solar system at seven astronomical units per year or faster. And the idea is to get quickly out of the heliosphere into interstellar space to make a transect of measurements on a very long 50-year prime mission. Very ambitious, long-lived spacecraft. But again, the Voyagers have set the precedent of 42 years and counting. So it's not completely outside the realm of, 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 of what's sane. Now, one, one of the really exciting things about the interstellar probe concept mission that APL is working on it, um, is the possibility of doing flyby planetary geology of another dwarf planet beyond Neptune. 
to basically do what New Horizons did at Pluto with another one of the other 130 Pluto-sized planets out there. Uh, two such planets would, uh, are possibly Quayoar or Gonggong. Gonggong is still a, 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 a nickname, but it's a proposed name. Its official designation is 2007-OR-10, but it's probably going to be named Gonggong, uh, which is after a Chinese creation deity. Both of these planets are smaller than Pluto. Gonggong is halfway between Charon size and Pluto size. Quayoar is about the same size as Pluto's moon Charon, also itself a dwarf planet. Um, and uh, these are both uh, much further from the sun than Pluto currently is. And um, the exciting potential here is that most planets in the solar system have gone unexplored because most planets are these small icy dwarfs. And so the field of comparative planetology, understanding how similar processes operate across different planets and what's unique and shared among different planets, has a long, long, long way to go in the Kuiper Belt. The Kuiper Belt, this region beyond Neptune, is just screaming for more exploration missions, more spacecraft. And so Interstellar Probe, while it's primarily studying the heliosphere and the interstellar medium, would, could hopefully be equipped with cameras and spectrometers to image and measure the compositions of another dwarf planet to help move forward the exploration of the Kuiper Belt, this trans-Neptunian region, and to help us understand the diversity in landforms and processes among the most common type of planet, which are dwarf planets. So, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. But. You, using modern technology and nothing really new, how do you go from uh, the speed of Voyager 1 to 7 AU? Yeah, 7 AU per year. So yeah. this is where rocket – I love this. This is where rocket science, David, gets really easy because if you want to go fast, you take a lightweight spacecraft and you put it on a really big rocket. And we kind of did that with New Horizons. We took one of the most powerful rockets in the U.S.'s fleet, the Atlas V, and we had five solid rocket booster strap-on motors. And the New Horizons spacecraft is only half a ton. Keep in mind that an Atlas V can put about 20 tons into low Earth orbit, and we launched with only a half-ton spacecraft. This rocket thought it was launching empty, and it just leapt off the pad. On top of that, we had a Star 48 solid rocket motor uh, on top of it, which gave us another kick uh, away from the Earth uh, towards our Jupiter gravity assist that then sped us on towards Pluto. And the flyby of Jupiter cut about three years off the mission if we had gone straight to Pluto. So we kind of, like, take the same approach but scale it up a little bit. You also, With Interstellar Probe, you would have a lightweight spacecraft, and you take a very powerful rocket, such as the Space Launch System, or SLS rocket, that is currently undergoing final development um, at, at, at Boeing's facility, uh, under the purview of NASA, but at the Michoud Assembly Facility in Louisiana, um, that will then be moved to uh, uh, Cape Canaveral at Kennedy Space Center relatively soon. So the Block 1B SLS, which is a, a version of the SLS, will be capable of placing 105 metric tons in the low Earth orbit. But if you're not going to low Earth orbit, if you're going to the outer solar system and your spacecraft is much smaller, well, then you can go there really fast. And so the way we solve this problem is using an SLS rocket or a similar rocket that may be coming online around that time. For example, maybe Blue Origin's new Glenn rocket, which would be comparable to an SLS, and uh, we do a flyby of Jupiter to do a, a Jupiter gravity assist where we steal some of Jupiter's angular momentum around the sun, and we use it to kind of lasso or slingshot us away from Jupiter even faster than we came into Jupiter. And one trick that we might do on top of all that would be to take, for example, a Star 48 solid rocket motor with us all the way to Jupiter. Earth is at one astronomical unit from the sun. Jupiter is at five. We take our interstellar probe spacecraft with a solid rocket motor. We go out to Jupiter, and at our closest approach to Jupiter, when we're getting the most powerful gravitational slingshot effect, we light that rocket engine. And the combination of lighting that rocket engine when we're already going fast and already getting a gravitational kick from Jupiter has the potential to send us out of the solar system at speeds greater than 7 AU per year. Does it ever slow down, or is it basically frictionless and just keeps going? It's basically frictionless and just keeps going. It, it's always going to be slowing down a little bit because the sun's gravity will continue to pull on it. So the fastest that it would ever be going would be uh, at its closest approach to Jupiter. Um, but it hasn't slowed down that much. For example, New Horizons um, passed both Pluto and Arrokoth, ME69, a billion miles apart, going this, approximately the same speed at 14 kilometers per second or three astronomical units per year. So it's not going to be slowing down terribly quickly. And, it, and it's going fast enough that the sun's gravity will never pull it back. Um. Paul is a listener in upstate New York, and he says, David, I'm at work. I can't uh, send in a phone call to you. But uh, it seems to me that, that one of the challenges with NASA type of missions is to avoid mission creep so you keep the payload being very, very light. What do you do to uh, avoid mission creep and make the payload too heavy? So to avoid mission creep, you are absolutely married 
to a set of mass requirements, um, almost like a Ten Commandments, thou shalt not exceed 80 kilograms scientific payload kind of mentality. And 80 kilograms is not necessarily that, but it's, you know, ballpark. And so... Another thing is that all of your instruments need to pull double duty or triple duty. So your spectrometer that you might use for studying interplanetary dust would also need to be used for planetary flyby. And the camera that you use for imaging a planet close up would also have to be used for doing optical navigation to help your spacecraft kind of thread the cosmic needle it needs to fly to stay on trajectory. So, um, oh, and the communications dish, the radio dish, could also be used as a scientific instrument like we did on New Horizons to, uh, probe, to probe the potential of an atmosphere using radar sounding uh, or radio sounding uh, around a dwarf planet. So to avoid mission creep, you, you, it's, it's almost dictated by the launch vehicle and the trajectory. It's, a, it's, it's pretty much a thou shalt not commandment to not exceed a certain mass. And the enforcement on that is what? Is it <laughs> but I mean, do people voluntarily uh, obey those those rules, or they try to sell? You know, this isn't going to weigh that much. Let's put this on. Well, no. The way the way you do that is you have a good systems engineer and a good uh, um, program scientist or, or mission scientist who can say, nope, that weighs too much. It must be be under this mass amount. And um, the laws of physics are. Uh, have to be obeyed, and uh, good program management will will ensure that that happens. And I think we've seen really good execution of preventing mass creep when the laws of physics really dictate that that be the case uh, in missions like we uh, in in uh, with interstellar probes, certainly with New Horizons, and with other mission concepts. Uh, Sherry in Dallas says, "Are there actual targets you could attempt to examine beyond the heliosphere in interstellar space, or is that totally unknown?" Yes. Um, there is a chance of finding... So we know that planets orbit the sun outside uh, the heliosphere. This is kind of where interstellar space and the solar system overlap a bit, just like where the International Space Station is, is an overlap between outer space and the Earth's outer atmosphere. Um, and we know that a lot of dwarf planets are on very elliptical orbits that take them hundreds of astronomical units away from the sun. The Voyagers found that the edge of the heliosphere is about at 120 AU, um, and we know that there are planets that, that travel beyond that. Um, a lot of listeners may have known about, quote-unquote, uh, the, the possibility of the discovery of what they've been calling Planet 9. Of course, with the geophysical planet definition, it's call, silly to call it Planet 9. It'd be the fifth giant planet if it exists, or another giant planet beyond Neptune. Um, I'm, I, I prefer calling it Giant Planet 5 for now, uh, until it's discovered, if it exists. But if that thing exists, uh, we could very easily send a spacecraft there, and uh, it would be outside the heliosphere, but the, the possibility of going to a planet outside the heliosphere certainly is a possibility. The challenges would be profound because talk about doing imaging that far from the sun. Imaging at 45 AU, where Arakoth, MU69 is, was challenging enough. If you are more than double or triple or quadruple that distance and light falls off according to a power law, you're talking about really dim light levels. So you'd really probably need infrared imaging to see the heat uh, being emitted by an object. So, it, so to get to your answer, to, to more succinctly answer the uh, caller's question, yes, we could fly by uh, a world beyond the heliosphere that's still gravitationally bound to the sun. Uh, that would have to be discovered first, though. So, if you're that far out, and what's the the travel time for a signal back to Earth? Uh, if you were 120 uh, AU away from Earth out in the heliosphere, how long does it take to get a signal back to Earth? Uh, it, we, we'd be talking light hours to light days. I happen to know that right now New Horizons, which is just beyond 45 AU, maybe 46 or 47 AU, maybe 46 AU, 3 AU per year, so we're almost to, oh, almost 48 AU, come to think of it. It's about 13 hours round trip. So uh, if we say hello to New Horizons and New Horizons gets a message, replies immediately, um, it's going to be 13 hours before we hear New Horizons say that, um, say anything. So the the Voyagers are roughly three times, not quite three times that distance. So um, it's on the order of days. So it, I think one way light travel time for the Voyagers is just under a day, I believe. And this is with low power transmission, correct? Uh, you know, you, you don't. <laughs> it's 10 to 15 watt. Yeah, 10 to 15 watts from four billion miles away. Yeah. So that's what a refrigerator light bulb is. An incandescent, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now all of your all of your power is being crammed into one frequency wavelength, so it's going to be just like a ten watt LED light is brighter than it looks brighter than a ten watt incandescent light because an incandescent light is putting most of its power in the infrared uh, as heat. But uh, yeah, it's really amazing that we can even talk to spacecraft that far away with such low wattage 
transmitters. That's certainly so, so communicating from distances of hundreds of AU away, uh, maybe out to 500 AU, that what interstellar probe could do. There's certainly communication challenges that need to be overcome, but nothing, nothing revolu- nothing that completely breaks technology paradigms, but still a, a, a technological challenge. Um, we have time for maybe this question. Josh is in Memphis, and he says, um, given your speed and the type of spacecraft that you want to send out as compared to the plans of breakthrough with a tiny little wafer maybe going 20% the speed of light, it looks to me as if these missions trade speed for the amount of data that can be gathered. Uh, Also, I know breakthrough can't slow down at a destination. I'm assuming your mission could not slow down as it passed by a destination either. Is that correct? correct? Yeah, the interstellar probe really is not designed to slow down. Um, now, the, the difference is that Breakthrough Starshot will not be ready to send anything uh, beyond the solar system in the next decade. And the thing with interstellar probe is that it's, it's designed to be targeted to launch no later than 2030, to be able to launch, not saying that we will launch, but to be able to launch no later than 2030. The idea is to have such a pragmatic design that we could do this mission now. And Breakthrough Starshot, as the name implies, requires quite a number of breakthroughs. Um, you have an 11th hour phone call. Do you want to take it? Sure. You can stay on. Okay, hang on. Uh, hi, caller. Welcome to the program. Who are you? Where are you, please? Hi, it's Tony Cook, and uh, calling from Pasadena. Okay, how are you? On my way to work. Um, uh, just for the record, um, he's at Griffith Observatory. Yeah. It's, I wanted just to add Physically, that. Physically, I'll be there in about an hour. So are you one of those nasty yet. astronomers that we've been talking about during this show? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, uh, our, our, you know, the policy we have at the observatory is we do stick with the IAU definition of planet just not to get students in trouble. Because one thing we've noticed is when, you know, I, I've been to tours at JPL and a tour guide will tell the kids, well, I don't care what they say, Pluto is a planet. The problem is that's gonna, that may get them in trouble on a test. So we, we explain that that's the definition as bad as you know, I mean, what the IAU definition is, as bad as it is, but you know, the right answer right now is not a planet uh, for the sake of their tests, okay? G- give, them, um, give them the recording of this show so they get a better education and, and, <laughs> and they can hear yeah. Kirby talk. I, I'll tell you, the, the word planet to me seems a little problematic, though. Uh, you know, I, I read, like, the discovery papers of Pluto, and, you know, and Clyde Tombaugh was looking for the planet that was perturbing the motions of Uranus and Neptune, and I think they were thinking of something rather massive that would have been doing that. And Pluto turned out to be, not, not to be the planet he was looking for, I think. And back in the 1930s, they called it a trans-Neptunian object, and they weren't quite sure what it was because they couldn't see a disk on it. Um, uh, okay, so that... There's that. I mean, there was some uncertainty even then because its orbit was so different than the other planets. Okay. Um, the the other problem with the term planet, though, is that you know what are comets, meteoroids, and asteroids all have in common that they are minor planets. Okay. Um, planet just means wanderer in Greek because from Earth. You know, we see things illuminated by the sun that's moving through our sky. So the the term kind of applies to everything orbiting the sun in a way. Um, now, to me, it looks like when we talk about exoplanets, that the way they're described is a lot more useful. So we have, you know, giant, you know, super, super Jupiters or... Uh, many Earth, uh, things like that. So when, when we talk about those objects, we have some picture of kind of what they have in common. So what I was thinking maybe would be useful in, you know, since we know more about these objects now, is that, you know, the, the eight planets that, like the IAU would say, are planets now, are terrestrial planets and, and gas giant planets. Yeah, and that's exactly what the GPD says, is that there's different categories of planets, ice giant, gas giant, terrestrial planet, dwarf planet, satellite planet, exoplanet, rogue planet. Yeah, it's no, no, different categories of planets. Planet, yep, it absolutely. doesn't seem, seem satisfying because then you have uh, Ceres, which is a very singular object, and then you have 
you know, Kuiper belt objects. And um, so I would say, you know, maybe a main belt, main asteroid belt planet. And, yeah, a series of, and then uh, yeah, a belt series of all of these things. It's a dwarf planet. It's an asteroid belt object. Pluto's both a Kuiper belt object and it's a dwarf planet, which is a real planet. And right. since you're at Griffith Observatory, you have a real opportunity to teach teachers to not get their students in trouble when they answer those questions on the test and to really help promote a more holistic view in the classroom. Griffith Observatory is beautifully positioned to do that, and I'm so glad that you're interested in this and in a position at an observatory to be able to do that. Um, but, yes, planets have lots of different hats they can wear depending on right. what's a useful descriptor. Absolutely. Yeah. So when I, I, I laughed, I was on vacation when, uh, you know, Pluto was declared not to be a planet because I know we have a permanent Pluto exhibit that was being built at the time. Um, but the way it's handled is uh, it's just called Pluto and beyond, and it's, you know, we don't get into whether or not it's a planet. Well, you could still call it a dwarf planet. planet. You could still call it a dwarf planet because everyone agrees with that, and then the students can decide if a dwarf planet is a planet or not. I'm sorry. Uh, oh, well, you can still call it a dwarf planet, because the students can decide if a dwarf planet is a planet or not, because everyone agrees that Pluto's a dwarf planet. Yeah, no, I I do. It's just, it's just uh, to me, uh, when I hear planets discussed, especially exoplanets, I, they, the way they're categorized seems to be more useful to me than just saying, you know, in other words, it kind of has to be qualified what kind of planet you're talking absolutely, about. Absolutely, absolutely. There's lots of precedent for talking system. about the types of planets. Yep, yeah. absolutely. Thank you for the question. Okay. Well, all right. Thank you. And uh, and David, will I be seeing you tomorrow? Uh, no, unfortunately, um, I'm not able to get down there for uh, some health reasons, so I forgot to call you. I've been uh, busy dealing with all these other issues, so... Uh, I'm very sorry to hear that. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, not serious, but uh, an old scuba diving injury affecting my middle ear has surfaced, and uh, I get bouts of dizziness, so I, I'm not driving very far these days. I see. Okay. Well, let me know when you're in the area again. Uh, will do. Uh, Thanks a lot. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Um, we're listeners. We're uh, at the end of the show. Unless you hurry up and get an email in or a phone call in, uh, is there anything we should have talked about, forgotten to talk about that you uh, think we uh, should add in before we sign off for the for the day? Well, David, I think we pretty much covered the basis that dwarf planets are planets, too, just like ice giant planets are planets, too. Exoplanets and rogue planets are planets as well. Um, and that science is done by experts setting precedent and not by democratic bodies voting. Um, and I think that really – so, yes, Pluto is a planet, but so are the other 130 dwarf planets beyond Neptune. Um, and we just have a very holistic and excitingly diverse solar system that's just begging for more uh, missions to be funded to go uh, fly to these destinations. What has to happen for your uh, interstellar uh, concept mission to become a real mission? Right. So interstellar probe is uh, the members, uh, a number of us are writing what are called white papers for uh, the National Academies of Sciences in Washington, D.C. is tasked by NASA to kind of get the pulse on the, on the space science community, astrophysics, heliophysics, and planetary science. And these white papers uh, are short papers to kind of show what's important to scientists. And then from those papers, the National Academies writes what are called decadal surveys that, uh, that don't force NASA to go down a certain path, but strongly encourage and incentivize NASA to uh, kind of do what is considered to be the, the will of the community. And so we are currently writing white papers um, to show what kinds of amazing science, cross-disciplinary science, an interstellar probe could do. And if this kind of rises to the top in the decadal surveys, then, then it gives NASA more leverage to say, okay, this is actually a mission we want to go forward with. So it's by, by uh, being active community members and writing papers and uh, bringing attention to the incredible cross-divisional, cross-disciplinary science that the interstellar probe could do. Um, and how exciting it is, really, to, to send a spacecraft out of the solar system faster than has ever been done before. This is real Captain Kirk-style Star Trek exploration that should just ex – it excites me, and I hopefully it excites the general public as well. Um, if it doesn't – Excite the gurus doing the decadal survey. Is this the type of mission that would be affordable for a private sector mission? Um, I'm guessing the cost would be somewhere between one and four billion dollars. So there are certainly individuals with that kind of net worth. If it were, and it'd be up to them if they wanted to philanthropically fund this kind of mission. When would you know if this is going to be an approved mission? 
Uh, well, the decadal survey process takes a few years. It, it kind of takes a while. I would expect by the early 20s we will know, early to mid-20s we'll know um, uh, if it's actually going to happen or not. Well, I, I hope it happens. I, I guess there's not much that we the folks can do that have an interest in interstellar flight to, to help goose it along. Well, there? you could you could you could send out enthusiastic tweets and tag NASA, um, something like that. Just show, just you know, give it more attention and show how popular it is. And I think uh, I think and, and NASA certainly picks up on that sort of thing. Okay. Um, I, this audience really uh, does have a thing for interstellar missions, so uh, maybe some of the people will uh, get involved and and uh, do that. Do you have a website for the interstellar probe? Um, <laughs> Google NASA interstellar probe. I think that's the the safest thing I can say at this point. Okay. Google NASA interstellar probe. Okay. Um, Kirby, great uh, having you on the space show and talking to you about these topics, and I uh, hope we can check in with you uh, later again next year and stay abreast of what's happening, okay? Well, thank you for your interest, and I would look forward to future conversations, David. Thanks a lot, and uh, my best to you and your family for a great Thanksgiving and holiday season. Listeners, that's it for today. Thank you for your emails and Tony for your phone call. Everybody have a great, safe weekend. Come back for Open Lines on Sunday. And as always, keep looking up. Goodbye from Kirby David and The Space Show.